Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Jin Lally. Now, you may remember Eloise Leeson, um, who uh, does linguistics. She's um, a linguistic consultant working with very large organizations and very complex organizations working in crowded markets. She recommended that Jin and I speak. And I'm delighted that she did, because today we're going to spend a large amount of time to looking at self-awareness. What is it? What happens when you lack it? And how can you develop it? And what's the payoff of being able to really develop a strong level of self-awareness? What what does it mean to others? And then we're going to look at how you can beat your judgments of yourself. Because one of the big problems is that you're building up huge reservoirs of stress, which Jin calls um, stress buckets. And in fact, she's written a book called How to Empty Your Stress Buckets, and her podcast is called Stress Bucket Solutions. So check those out as well. Jin, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Marcus. And shall we thank Eloise at the same time as well for putting us in touch? Absolutely. Well, Dem, I, I hope this is the first of many by the sounds of it in the green room and our previous call. I think it might well be. So tell us a little bit about your background and you know, give us a minute or two on how you ended up doing what you're doing as well. So I'm a solution-focused psychotherapist now, Nice, if I can put my teeth back in there. But I used to be an optometrist, which is just a posh word for an optician. And I love that. I love doing that. But you see a lot of people, Marcus, when you're an optician and you talk a lot about their general health and everybody had a story in stress and they had high blood pressure, heart disease, type 2 diabetes because of stress. And I was like, but something's wrong here. Like all these people with stress and they just get this medication. I knew all the medications off by heart. I'd often encourage people to go and get their blood pressure checked because I thought it was high. When we look inside the eye, we are looking directly at blood vessels. And if those blood vessels are a little bit curvy and twisty, it's a sign that blood pressure could be high. Ah, interesting. So we sort of say, look, I don't know if it's high, but could you go and see your practice nurse or your GP and just get your blood pressure checked for me? And people are always really surprised that we can pick up on that. But like I said, your your eyes is one place in your body where we can look at directly at your blood vessels and we can get an idea of what's going on in the rest of your body. They're a good reflection of that. Little burst blood vessels at the back of the eye um, could be type 2 diabetes. So all these things boil down to stress. People have had a hard life and people used to then tell me their story. And oh, I love listening to people's stories, Marcus, like what's gone in the, on in their life, how they've got to where they are. But then you know what? I often also saw really healthy people who also had a story in stress. You know, they had challenges, they had things going on. And I thought, what's going on here? And instead of talking about stress and anxiety and depression, shouldn't we be studying these people who have had stress, but they're coping really well? Where does their resilience come from? And they couldn't put a finger on it. I used to ask people, like, you know, what do you do? And they were just saying, well, you know, I just do whatever. I just, ca- I've got to carry on. I've got to carry on, Jin. You know, or maybe that's how they've been brought up. I don't know. Maybe that's just their philosophy in life. So I decided to retrain into getting to the root of all of this stress, like what's going on in stress. But I didn't want to talk about people's problems. Everyone's got a story. Everyone's got problems. So when I found solution-focused work, I thought, right, this is right up my street. (laughs) So that's why I do this now. Okay. Well, tell me this then, because it sounds to me like 
much of this begins with self-concept and self-dialogue. Let's just have a quick shifty around that. Um, and maybe we'll start with the definition of self-awareness. Let, let's start with that. What is self-awareness? Self-awareness is understanding yourself, where you come from, why you behave the way you do, and what impact that has on others around you, be it friends, family, colleagues, whoever. And the, after that, the world around you. Everything you do has an impact on your world around you. And if you've got some self-awareness, you can change that if you want to. If something's not working for you, start with self. You need to look at yourself. So you've got to sit down and not necessarily analyze. You know, I'm not saying we need to be analytical about this, but you need to have a clear enough head to look at your faults, look at your pluses as well. There's, you've got some good things about you. It's not all about bad, but is there something you want to change? Do you consider it a fault? You know, sometimes people will say to me, oh, Jin, you're really in control of your emotions. And, you know, you've got maybe more masculine tendencies than anything. And I'll say, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I'll say, you know what? I own it, Marcus. I'll say, well, that's your definition mm. of the way I am. What I feel is I'm in control of my emotions. You know what? I've trained myself to do that because that's what works for me in my world. I have been out of control with my emotions before. And you know what? It had a huge impact on my life and it had a huge impact on everyone around me. I want to have some control. Control is good. Well, again, I think the sense of agency is really important, but it's also critically important to accept the stuff you can't control and the stuff that doesn't matter and know the difference between what's important and not important and what's urgent and not urgent. Mm -hmm. uh, and to understand that other people are seeing the same context differently. And until you understand that, you'll be guilty of making assumptions. And that filter is a road to perdition. There's very little good comes from that. Taking things personally is another form of attachment, and it's a major bugbear of mine. And speaking with genuine integrity and intent, speaking deliberately, um, th these are qualities that very few people really master, especially the one about self-talk. And the net result of that is that they don't do their best. They give up. Um, they settle. They get comfortable, complacent. So how do we make sure that we're aware ourselves of the triggers in us? What do we need to feel in our body and what we'll be aware of that we might feel in our body? What are the conversations we might be having, the tone? Physical symptoms occur because of this. So look, it's, it's easy. You will get physical symptoms. If you've got negative self-talk going on in your head, you are going to, your guts are going to churn. Your heart might race. You'll get a little bit sweaty. You'll, you'll, you'll tense up. All your muscles will tense up. You know, it, your body and mind are one. So look out for those signs physically. Look for the environment around you. Are you do you have good relationships? Have you curated your life in a way? Are there things you're unhappy with in your 
environment, physical, social, mental. One thing that I don't like that you, I think you were touching upon there, Marcus, was when people have a past trauma and they use this to blame where they are now and where they're going to go going forward. So something has happened and they're like, well, this is the way I am. This is the way I am because this happened to me in my past. And I have to knock that out of the park. I'm like, no, it's not. You are choosing. You are choosing to use that as a crutch, for, as an excuse for where you are now. You can change this. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to be controversial. This is opinions you might not have heard from a therapist, but you need to remember I'm solution focused. I'm not denying your past that you've had trauma. But as many people have had trauma and they are getting on with life. If you are choosing to not go out because you're scared, because when you were growing up as a child, your parents didn't love you. And now you're not going out and making relationships because you've got so, and you've got social anxiety. There's a part of you there that is playing the victim and you want to be special. Because if you don't do that, if you go out and be in inverted commas normal, you're not going to get any attention, are you? But it, you get lots of attention if you are at home with social anxiety and you can talk about your problems. One of the fundamental human needs is significance. And um, what's depressing is how often that drives people's behavior. And if a second human need is not being met, then their ego will get hooked. And often insecurity creates uncertainty. And that's a big trigger. And we're seeing that an awful lot of that at the moment with the recession and the layoffs and so on. Then people will override their values and they will behave in ways that become harmful and detrimental because um, they will find that they have a hollow inside and um, or an emptiness that needs to be numbed. So I'm sensing that that's uh, a, a real byproduct of uh, this kind of stress, which results in abuse like sex, drugs, alcohol, uh, spending, uh, retail therapy. Gambling, all of those. It, it's something people are looking for an outlet and they're looking for something outside of themselves because why would we blame ourselves? Now, I think that social media has got a lot to blame for it. It's all about me. It's all about, you know, Instagram. It's I, I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and she was saying that she saw something on TikTok where a transgender person changing from female to male now wanted to be called male. And they were having a rant on TikTok that my family have disowned me and I can't spend Christmas with them and this is awful. And when you dug a little bit deeper with that story, what actually happened was this. They had told their family they wanted to be now addressed as he. And the 90-year-old grandmother had said, I love you. I don't understand, but I love you. Please, will you come for Christmas? And they said, no, like they can't, unless you address me as he, then uh, I'm not going to come. Mm -hmm. And the grandma said, well, I'll do my best, but I'm not understanding this, but I love you. I love you as you are. As I know you've always been my granddaughter. So I'm, this is going to take me a while to understand. What they wanted was that person, what he wanted was for the whole world to change around him. Mm -hmm so that he was comfortable. Now, that's not going to happen. It's not your responsibility. This is a 90-year-old grandmother. You know, let's face it, how long she got left. It's just Christmas. Can you not put up with it? Yeah. This whole I, 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 the whole world has to change around you. Now, uh, this is not the transgender question. I'm not debating that at all. That's something separate. What I'm talking about is this selfishness mm -hmm. that you want everyone else to change to fit in with you. 
I don't know where that's coming from. Is it social media? Is it pampered lifestyle or helicopter parenting or this with this generation? What is it? I think there is a really ugly trend in entitlement. And I've always found that to be the ugliest of human traits because it's a feeder for so many bad behaviors and used as a justification for racism, bullying, Mm. uh, misogyny, just being utterly vile. And normally that stems from fear or ignorance. Sometimes it's fed by ego because you've been pampered. I I always remember that uh, video of Jacob Rees-Mogg as an 11-year-old saying, I love money, it's wonderful. And then he's driving in the back of a a Rolls-Royce. And you could kind of see where he was headed because that conditioning that to be have that kind of belief system and uh, to want to be on television to say that mm. and for his parents to encourage it speaks a lot about the environment but he makes the choices for the decisions he makes now he seems very comfortable with them so he i, I don't ever sense any incongruence there i definitely sense quite a lot of lying that's another thing, uh, another matter entirely. As a politician. Yeah. But what, what, what I'm flabbergasted by is that when you do call this kind of thing out for what it is, which is entitlement, you know, you, you see this woke karate and the pronoun thing I struggle with, and I'm a 55-year-old man, and I'm doing a lot of work m- with millennials and Gen Zs, but I've never found them tell me that. The only one who's ever uh, really given me any grief about it are uh, my children. So, yeah, but in my house, I'd probably say things I shouldn't because I'm an old fuddy daddy and I don't know better. In your own home, you're allowed to. This comes back to self awareness. You have an awareness that you have certain opinions that you would not put on social media, you wouldn't talk about in public. You are a human being and you can have opinions. It, it, the the self awareness bit comes from. I don't know where I'm getting this opinion. I do have an opinion. It doesn't sit quite right with me. It doesn't sound right. Let me educate myself a little bit more. Let me find some information, maybe talk to people. Even then, if you have an opinion on something, the self-awareness bit is where do you draw the line? Unfortunately, things like social media means there's no line anymore. These people have a platform that they can put it out there and they're not challenged or they're keyboard warriors, aren't they? They, They're challenged behind the keyboard, but they don't have to face anybody necessarily. So that self-awareness, have an opinion, but you've got to then own it. If you're a racist, say you're a racist. Mm. If you're a misogynist, say you're a misogynist, but then you need to understand that that will be your world. Jacob Rees-Mogg will be more than happy in that world. The problem with someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg is he's a politician and representing his constituency or people, and he is not in touch with people. Our current Tory government is not in touch with people. the normal person on the ground. You need that self-awareness, knowing that I come from this privileged position, but I need to be aware of what's going around on around me as well and what's going on in the world, especially in those kind of positions. I, I, I think it, it may well be that um, the examples that we have, because uh, again, I, I don't want this to be a Tory bashing, but when uh, Liz Truss a couple of weeks ago decided to make a comeback uh, and make no apology for tanking the economy and still blaming other people entirely, saying that she was right. 
despite the evidence to the contrary. And the markets, who are generally known for not being terribly socialist in their meanings, telling her she was wrong as well. That level of denial. And that's something that I've noticed in Oscar Wilde said something really fabulous. And he said, uh, a society deserves the celebrity it gets. And I think we've really reached that point. Love that. Isn't it? It's so astute. Yeah. We've put them up there. We've made them these things. The programs like, I don't, you know, I don't watch them. Love Island. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. You've made them. Yeah. You've you've made them. Now you can't knock them. That's who we've got. Okay. But is that down to the fact that we now have this incredible medium through the internet and our phones? And I mean, this whole network means that People who had no voice have a voice, but now reason and rationale have gone out the window because the platforms are just dopamine factories. Yeah, we don't know how to debate anymore, do we? We need to have different opinions. and We're not there to change people's mind. If someone had a different opinion to me, I'm not there. I don't want to change their mind, but I would like them to at least listen to the opposing opinions and think, oh yeah, well, okay, that kind of makes sense. You know, this this is what's going on. Again, going back to that self-awareness, getting informed, getting educated, understanding different points of view. You know that the the algorithm, isn't it, for social media, if you start liking certain posts, you're going to see more of those posts. You can get really sucked in to something, but you've got to engage the intelligent part of your brain and start getting a bit objective. You learn when you find people who you disagree with that's where you really learn I, I, the, the podcast has been brilliant for that because you know a lot of times we end up arguing over stuff because sometimes it's semantics sometimes it's a genuine disagreement but bob reich who was uh, an advisor to bill clinton made the point you know you, you've got to try and cross the to the other side of the house uh, and that bipartisan politics has gone out the window as well which is why i think uh, societally we've degenerated or polarized and it would be really wonderful to have some intelligent moderate politicians across the uh, the barrier and start working together in the same way that in businesses different departments should all be working together uh, around solving the customer's problem and this is diversity of opinion as well isn't it yeah. so di- diversity well, diversity of thought of thought yeah opinion bringing that together so that you're providing a better service, whatever that is for your, your service or your product. We're in a diverse world now. We need diversity in the boardroom. I couldn't agree more. 20 years ago, I went to see Tom Peters and he was proudly announcing the first woman executive on the board of Sony. How many are there today? <laughs> Zero. Has it gone down And Sony or everywhere else? Nothing's really changed. Yeah, nothing's changed. We're still arguing the toss over women's pay. I I debate whether it's gone backwards, Marcus. Yeah, I think it's gone backwards. Someone told me somewhere to get where we are now, to get to equality, gender equality, we'll take, if we carry on like this, we'll take another 125 years. What we really need to do is look for gender equity. And what we need to look for, I mean, you, you mentioned the whole concept of talent. Let's just put this into context. When you had decided you need to have people who work in your office, 
you've just limited your pool to your local marketplace and people who are willing to travel to your office. And then you're limiting it to those who are available and respond to your shitty job advert, which is mostly self-referencing and self-serving. And then you recruit somebody on the basis of past skills, experience, and results, not anything that actually predicts their future performance. Mm. You then onboard them poorly in order to ensure that they don't stay for very long or succeed in the role. And then you have to start again. Whereas if you recruit people on the basis of leading indicators, you find people who stay, who succeed, and who get better over time. If you look for the right qualities, but almost no one does because they're stuck in a pattern of behavior and they, they take the easy, lazy option. And that's how it's always been done. So that's an excuse. Yeah, that is an excuse. So they, that's how it's always been done. That's what's worked. But now that's what I'm saying. The world is changing and we need to start changing with it. People are not kind of realizing that. And I really hoped that post-COVID it would. We learned a lot in that lockdown time. It seems to have just gone back to normal, whatever that normal was, gone back to what it was before. Uh, Well, again, I dispute that because I think there are a few who have taken advantage of the point that I was going to make before I started to ramble, which is that you now have seven and a half, eight billion people that you can pick from, of whom, let's say, 70% are probably connected to the internet in one form or another or have mobile telephony and do micro commerce uh, using their phones. And interestingly enough, you have access to a global resource and That's a very diverse base. And if you're smart, you start recruiting your bench and you start building ecosystems. I've been doing that the last two years and I cannot even begin to tell you the kind of stuff that we can do that I never dreamt was even possible. And I know clients that we talk to today have no idea that stuff that can be done. I mean, we can literally increase effectiveness of a salesperson by 80x in a day. I mean, wow. wow, is that? That's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. And you can do the same if we do the stuff that you're talking about. Because yeah. if you get managers to really become self-aware, that's what I would yeah. love. So talk to me about the effect managers actually have and why it's crucial that we start investing in them and stop putting them under stress. Because 60% of sales managers today suffer from a stress-related health condition. Because we lead by example. People are looking for who is the who is my line manager or leader or team leader, whatever you want to call them. That's the example that we want to set. So I will often say to these people in management positions that you can't, if you want to work all the hours, fair enough. Do you, now you're expecting all your uh, staff and team to work like that. No, you have to show that. The best managers I know lead by example. And they've got to understand, again, back to self-awareness, their own self-awareness. What do I need to do? I need to show that I can still do a really good job, but I can take an afternoon off when I need to take my kids to the dentist or whatever. I've got to have this balance in my life. And also they appreciate that because I can spend time with my children because I can do my triathlon at the weekend and train for that as well. I'm a disciplined, organized person and I'm going to bring my best self to work. There's no such thing as work-life balance. It's all called life, all of it. 
It's all life. Because if you're putting work at one end and life at the end, other end, what are you saying? So many people, the first question we ask people at a party is, what do you do? Obviously, we don't want to define ourselves with what we actually do, but hopefully you're in a job that you can say, oh, well, you know, I'm in, I'm in marketing and I really love it. I'm marketing for this company. And then I do this at the weekends. It's, it's part of you. So well, you've got to bring your whole self to work. Well, people don't understand how to differentiate between the roles and functions that they have and their identity, the who they are. Um, and the danger of that is that as their performance in role starts to suffer or um, they seek the approval of others because they're really looking for significance, then they tend to overemphasize that. And that then means that their personal relationships suffer. They start to be willing to compromise their values. And so they're more uh, isolated, trust is eroded, and people start to actively avoid them because of that entitlement, because they feel undervalued. So the, the danger of not having self-awareness in sales is lethal. But in management, it's absolutely preposterous that you could have, you could promote people who are not self-aware, or you could hire people who are not self-aware, and then they create these conditions. Why do companies still do that when the evidence is that it's very expensive because you're seeing this huge turnover? And sales floors are like a revolving door nowadays. I, I haven't got the answer for you there, Marcus. That's a brilliant question. I know someone in a job, their manager above them is a bully and has yeah. been in that job for many, many years. In my friend's position has gone through four or five people. And Everybody knows why. It's, it's almost like this unsaid thing in the company. Everyone knows why. It's because of the bully one step up. Why is no one doing anything about that? I haven't got the answer for you, Marcus. I don't know. I think it's fear and cowardice because if people know it's there and they're not saying or doing anything about it, if they're not the boss of the ultimate boss, then someone does have authority and could confront it. Now, is that because um, this person rules with so much fear, no one dares raise it, and the boss is inured to it? In which case, that's irresponsible leadership. It normally starts at the top. You have to look at the culture of the people who run the thing or fund it. But that's this is hierarchy. Hierarchy really bothers me. We are all human beings at the end of the day. There's people in that team I know, they're off, off work with stress, two or three months. This is a wasted money. However, the bully is on a lovely six-figure salary. Yeah. What a waste of money. But well, this hierarchy, you can't just say like, you know, I wish people could say, we all know she, that person is a bully. We need to do something about it. But coming from higher up, higher up are sitting in their offices in London or whatever, not knowing what's going on on the shop floor. Ah, right. So they don't do management by walking around. The manager is producing the result that they care about. And they don't care about the consequences of uh, or how they do it. They're getting an average result. They could get so much better results if we got rid of this bully. But again, we see this all the time because in many organizations, bullies have created this culture and people then become uh, acculturated. It's like that experiment with the monkeys where uh, they put a bunch of fruit in the middle. And when any one of them goes at it, they spray them with cold water. 
And then they bring in another monkey uh, who doesn't know about all of this. And then they batter uh, the monkey uh, to prevent them getting sprayed. And bullies don't know they're bullies. Yeah, that's just the way it is. But yeah, you're right. And and with that experiment, they keep taking away one monkey, don't they? Until eventually they all don't go for the fruit, but no one knows why. You see that in organizations all the time. When you think about process, why do we do it this way? I don't know. We've always done it that way. When did we start? 1872. All right, maybe it's time for a review. But for me, as a person who studies people, that bully will know that they're bullying. They will know it. There's something in their life that's going on. Right. That they are behaving the way they are behaving. If we come down to now individual level, there is something going on with that person. I would agree with that. In some cases, there is no malice. That's the way Mm. they behave. In others, there definitely is. But either way, the outcome is evil. Yeah. And it needs to be called out for that. And they need to be accountable for it. And if they're willing to take responsibility and change, then it's reasonable to forgive and Mm. uh, enable that. But again, did they get the coaching? Did they have a feedback mechanism? Um, How are they measured? Because again, that backstory... Same with the uh, the trans story you told earlier on. You know, there is so much more. We've got to be careful mm. of not picking or taking an assumption and running with it until we've actually checked. Mm. And I think this is one thing that is coming out of this conversation for me is about deep reflection. What advice can you give people about how to reflect effectively? Okay, when when people use the word deep reflection, people always, I don't know if this is an assumption, uh, this is how I see it. people think, oh, well, I need to go on a retreat or I need to be off for two weeks and, you know, start studying myself and meditating. And I, okay, that, that's, you're overcomplicating it now. It's about looking in the mirror every day, looking at your life in small parts every day, thinking, is this what I want? Am I happy with what I see in the mirror? Am I happy with what is going on in my environment? What small steps can I take to change? very small. When people want to change something, they'll always start with big stuff. Like this mm. massive thing. Oh, well, you know, you know, January is a great example for that. Oh, I'm going to go <laughs> vegan. I'm going to go sober. I'm going to do dry January. Why would uh, you do gym. dry January? It's the longest the month. Oh, yeah. Jim Park car park's packed, isn't it? Yeah. Until the fourth. Yeah. 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 And then it, it's empty again because it was too much, too quick. Yeah. You know, so um, there's a, a good podcast and book, um, Just One Thing by Michael Mosley. Oh, nice. What do you think? Yeah. Just One Thing. If you, uh, what it starts with, drinking more water, going for a walk, getting more sleep. If you did just one thing, you will notice changes in your life. But do one thing at a time. If you did one thing every month and layered it up, so kept with your one habit of drinking more water for January, that's great. And then in the second month, keep drinking more water and maybe start walking a little bit more. And then in the third month, add a third one on. It's much more sustainable, much more consistent and easier. Why does everybody want to do everything at once? We want, we want the hack and the app, don't we, to help right. us? So again, I would love to get a sense of how one's understanding and perception of time affects one's self-awareness. Because I think certainly with social media, I can definitely feel my palpitations kicking in 
I get a little bit excited. The phone goes on, and I, you know, it catches my attention. And um, that I've got, I'm having these hundreds or thousands of reinforcements every day, every week, every month, every year. So that's habit forming. And I'm really curious to try to understand what can we do to capitalize on the way the brain really works, the way the brain really learns, forms habit, to create the right kind of decisions. Because I think one of the things haste does is it shuts off our control centers and we become less good decision makers. Let's put it that way. I think that's the political uh, politic way. <laughs> and we become dumber. So I'm always trying to work out why people do what they do. And I'd love to work out how to help them make better choices, better decisions with less negative unintended consequences. Help. So the way I talk about how the brain works is you do have, we all have a negative part of our brain. It's designed to keep us safe. It's a primitive brain. It's the fight or flight or freeze response. Now, that part of the brain is fueled by a full stress bucket. If your stress bucket is full, your primitive brain is having a field day. If your stress bucket is empty, that negative part of your brain is still there, but it's not on high alert. It's not so vigilant. So this is where people will get on with doing things more. For example, someone will say, oh, well, you know, why would I start doing my degree now? Because in fi- by the time I finish it in three years time, I'm going to be 55. And who gets a degree at 55? The thing is, in three years time, you're going to be 55 anyway. <laughs> so why, why not start today? 55 is going to happen, hopefully, you know, if you live that long. Do you uh, get what I mean? Like time, we can't yeah. stop time. So uh, what, what we find... Yeah. In solution focus work, what we do is we say, right, what is your vision of six months time? Let's just look at six months to start off with. We actually start off looking at tomorrow, but when we get a little bit bigger, we'll just go to six months. Six months is enough time to look into your future where it's a little bit exciting. It's not too far away, but it's far enough away to be interesting and things could be possible. Yeah. So what is your vision in six months time? If you were doing really well in six months time, what kind of conversation would we be having then? And let's say that everything had gone perfectly. Let's just play a game. In your imagination, if everything's gone perfectly in six months' time, and I asked you, oh, hiya, Marcus, what's been good over the last six months? What kind of things would you tell me? Now, what we're doing here is we're letting the imagination go. When, when, this is not a contract you're writing to yourself, and it's not a promise. Let's just play a game. Now, what will happen once you have a clear, detailed vision of your future your subconscious will start working towards it. You don't need to take big active steps to do that. It should start to feel natural. When people have a conflict in their emotions and when it creates stress, is it is normally because they have a vision of their future, but their current actions today are not in line with that. So what we've got to do, we've got to get them in line. So you have this vision of what you want, but you're not behaving in that way. And what people think is, right, what I need to do is I need to behave in a certain way to get there. But they're just looking at very small steps to start off with, which kind of makes sense. What you should do is if you've got, you know, a fairly empty stress bucket and I, that session, I do a session on, it's called the power of vision. And I, I tend to save that session until well into sessions where I know the stress bucket is empty. So when we start off and the stress bucket's overflowing, you've lost control. So you're not going to be able to have a vision of your future. You just want to think about tomorrow. 
But what you need to start doing is if you've got a vision of your future, start with that. What is your identity there? Who do you, who is this person that you want to be? And you might be even emulating someone. We can use that as a game. We can use that as part of, you know, who are your role models? Oh, I'd love to be that person. Well, then, you know, going to have to start maybe, you know, getting up a little bit earlier and doing things and making things happen. Everything that you do then should be feeling subconsciously that is in line with your vision of your future. Now, this is a really interesting point because I've just, in in the last couple of months, um, one of my business partners referred me to his wife, who's a functional medicine practitioner, who I'm going to introduce you to. And over the last two months, I've been following her guidance and I'm feeling so much better. I've lost over 10 kilos. I'm eating healthy, sleeping better. I'm drinking uh, properly, no alcohol, no fat, no gluten, all that kind of stuff. Now, what's interesting is I was put on a diet for the first time when I was three years old. My mother came out and we were based in Mönchengladbach in Germany. My dad was in the army. I was playing outside on the front garden. I had my tractor out. I had my building blocks and other stuff. And she came out and she brought a plate. And I was quite excited because it was lunchtime and I was a bit of a podgy child. And she gave me two rivitas with two pieces of dry ham on it with no butter. And I said, what's that? And she said, you're on the diet because you're too fat. And what's interesting is I've lived with that self-concept forever. Now, for the first time, I've found somebody who brought me a solution that I can believe in and I'm confident in the outcome because the diagnosis process took about seven hours. There were genetic tests, there were blood tests, poo tests, pee tests, and every other type of test. That raised my stress levels, trying to work out how to do all of those fucking tests. And this is the first time I've ever felt confident that I will accomplish a healthy body, a healthy mind, and a healthy lifestyle. And it's really, really liberating because I can put up with eating bloody kale. Um, I actually quite look forward to it now. I've even started regrowing wheatgrass and uh, juicing that. Fantastic. And is this because you're, you feel more in tune with your identity now, like, or um, the identity that you want as well, maybe? Well, I, I certainly didn't want to die younger than I should have. And being a bit of a blimp uh, throughout most of my life has been a deeply uncomfortable and often embarrassing and socially awkward place to be. And I've definitely held myself back. But I thought I was quite comfortable in myself and as a human being, man. But I recognize that if I don't deal with this, then reality will come home to strike. So I had a choice and I had to take responsibility for it. But I never found something I was confident in. And that's the difference. Because Amal has been brilliant in terms of her management and Karen, the coach uh, I'm working with as well. But that wasn't the real deciding factor. It was the fact that it was the whole experience It was the diagnosis. It was the fact that someone actually explained what the hell was happening and in their explanation described my story. So that felt congruent. Everyone's got a story. That's what you understood yourself as a whole person is is what I'm hearing from you. And now this is more in line with who you are today, not the three-year-old Marcus who Mm -hmm. mum brought out some rivetas to. Using that example, I know I, I saw a client a few years ago now and they wanted to lose weight. And during my process, that wasn't really where they had a lot of anxiety and stress as well. 
but a lot of weight. And one of the questions we ask in solution-focused work is this. So if you woke up tomorrow and you were feeling a little bit better, how would you know you're feeling a little bit better? What would be different? You know, what would be different about that? And she would always say, well, I would have lost half a stone, Jim. And I was really trying to get this concept. No, it's not about what would have happened. It's how would you know? And let's face it, you're not going to lose a half a stone overnight magically. And she wasn't cutting on to the concept. So what I did was this. There is only one question you need to keep asking yourself. And I guarantee you, you ask that question four, maybe five times, you will get to the juicy stuff. You'll get to your sweet spot of why you want to change. Because it's not about behavior. It's not about environment. It's about who you are as a person, your identity. That question is, what would be good about that? So using client as an example, I said, I, you know, six session or something, I said, right, I'm going to have to take a different tack with her. I asked her, so what would be good about losing weight? And she said, I would look good in my clothes. Okay, that's pretty much a given. Okay. But then I asked the question again, what would be good about looking good in your clothes? And she said, well, I'd be more confident and, you know, I'd carry myself so much better. And I said, what would be good about being more confident and carrying yourself better? And she said, well, you know, I'd, I'd probably go for that promotion at work. There's a promotion at work. You have to give a presentation. And I want to have the confidence to do that. Oh, God, it'd be amazing if I look good in my clothes and I gave that presentation. And then I asked her one more time and she hit the sweet spot. I said, what would be good about getting that promotion? And she said, I would be setting a really good example to my two daughters. Nice. Right. That is the reason you want to lose weight. Okay. So for the salespeople, listen to what Jen did. That is a fucking brilliant questioning strategy for a prospect. Because what she did was she got to the root cause of what the person wanted and what would motivate them to stay committed to making the decision and seeing it through. Therein lies the difference. And um, in the past, you'll be asked, uh, I would have taught people to ask three to five whys or even more. Uh, but why tends to be a bit, bit abrasive. And I've learned. Um, and that's a way more elegant way of doing it. Thank you so and much. It's positive as well. So we say that solution focused question, what would be good about that? What's good about it? What's positive about it? We're going in the right direction now. So her vision of her future was a wonderful mum who's got a really good job, setting a good example for two daughters of how women can succeed in the workplace. This is solution-focused work. Now, just coming back to something you said, Marcus, when you said that you were understanding yourself and you didn't want to be this and you didn't want to be that, if you were in a session with me, I would have ignored that and I would have said, what do you want to be instead? Ooh, so give, give me the vision of what you want. You were telling me what you didn't want and the brain doesn't work like that. So when you say, I don't want to feel anxious and I don't want to feel depressed, you are thinking of anxiety and depression. I'll give you an example. Right now, Marcus, I want you do not think about, do not think about a green bus. What are you thinking about? Uh, well, I did think of a green bus because I there saw a, a fleeting view of a yeah. green bus. There you go. But I said, don't think about it. That goes to rabbit, if I remember right. Yeah. <laughs> I was four the last time I saw one of them. There you go. So you, you're there again. But when we put don't in front of it, the brain doesn't hear that. So it's about what you want. Tell me what you want. And that's where I say, I'm a therapist that doesn't want to hear your problems. 
I want to hear what you want. Okay, so this comes back down to the language and the self-talk again. So let's uh, dig around that because I did promise we would and I probably got diverted. So talk to me about um, self-talk, the language, the tonality, uh, the intent. Just give it to give it to me all. Okay, so we've all got a negative voice in our head. Like I said, that's part of it. We touched on that earlier. That's part of your brain that is negative. How loud you want that negative voice to be is totally up to you as well. But we've got to accept there is a negative. That negative voice is keeping you safe. So I'm going to do a presentation and the negative voice in my head will say, oh, Jin, I hope you don't fluff up this presentation. You could fluff this up. Now, what I need to do is I need to understand how to override that. If my general stress levels are low, I'm going to override it a lot easier, a lot more easily than I am if I was stressed in lots of other parts of my life. If I hadn't slept well and I wasn't eating well and I had relationship issues going on and I just, you know, I've just had some really bad news about something, the negative voice is going to be a bit louder. So we we have to accept there's a little negative voice, but we need to say, no, I'm going to use the intelligent, rational part of my brain to say, yeah, I, the reason I'm thinking this way is because I want to do so well. I'm not going to be overconfident here. Come on, Jen, please don't muck it up. But let's do our best to do well. And you know what? Your best is good enough. I will do my best. So understanding that negative voice is sometimes helpful. But when that negative voice consumes you and stops you doing things because you're in fight or flight or freeze now, that's when it all falls apart. Okay. so. The neuroscience tells us that when a brain is confronted with ambiguity or uncertainty, the default setting is the worst case scenario. Yes. Um, For leaders and managers, you better be very aware of this. For salespeople, you create doubt or uncertainty in your buyer's mind. They're going to ghost you. They're going to run for the hills. They may be very polite and they'll even ask you for a proposal and tell you how wonderful your presentation is. And then they're not going to return your calls. So. What do we need to do in order to make sure that we don't fall foul of this rut, uh, which is a coffin with both ends kicked out? My favorite definition of a rut. <laughs> so what when, when you're in sales, when you're trying to talk to, to somebody? Yeah. You've got to sell all the advantages. You've got to turn it around say, and make it that if you didn't have this in your life, this is what could go wrong. A question I ask my prospective clients is this. If your situation was to carry on the way you are right now, with your anxiety or your depression or stress, what does this mean for your future? How long can this carry on? And default, what am, that's their default future. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to carry on, like, how long can this carry on? And not only is it affecting, it's not just about you. I will ask the question prior to that. How much impact is this having on your family, your career, your social life, your health? It's not just about you. Like if you can see, so some of my clients, they're, They'll say, well, yeah, I'm coping with it. And I'll I'll say, well, you know, are your kids picking up on it? They're like, no, I don't think so. Oh, hang on a minute. I think they are right now. If that's your reason to change your kids or your partner or someone else is worried about you, you know what? That's enough. That gives me a little, you know, gap in the door that I can get in. Even if you're doing it for someone else, that's absolutely fine. But you've, you've got to do this. And if you want it, if it's something that's going to make your life better, you have to, you have to invest in that. You have to invest in something that will make your life better. If you are so convinced of your product in sales that will improve this life, what you're looking for is what is missing in their life where your solution, your product, it solves their problem. 
We see companies go bad all the time. The moment the founder or the leaders forget why they're in business. You exist to help a customer, a human being, solve a problem. And in doing that, you should make a profit. That's a business. That's why the business exists. It's as simple as that. No other reasons. Everything else is just fluff or a distraction. So when you boil stuff down and you simplify, it seems that most people say, well, it can't be that easy. I don't think it is that easy. I think it is that simple. One of my favorite tools is the winner's triangle. Three points of a triangle to describe how to stay out of every shitty situation that your psychology can drag you into, and a drama triangle to describe every dysfunctional and broken relationship. Uh, and ha- staying out of that one is one of the hardest things I've ever faced. You're quite right. It's hard, and yet it's simple Yeah. as well. So the same in, in the work that I do. You know, I always say, look, it's not rocket science what I do, but you've been conditioned or you've conditioned yourself even to get into such a position where you are now that it feels hard to get out of. And actually where you are now is easier. Where you are now in your anxiety, you've got comfortable. You've got comfortable in your anxiety. You've got comfortable in your depression. To come out of that now is uncomfortable. But going back to the question I ask, how long can this carry on? What impact is it having on the others in your life? What if it just carried on like this? What impact would this have on, on your career? So you've got comfortable where you are. It's a nice place to be. The other thing is you're getting a lot of attention there. So it's nice, nice, nice place to be, to get a lot of attention. Because if you come out of that and become in inverted commas normal, you're not special anymore. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Because again, um, it, in TA, I learned that a negative stroke is better than no stroke at all. By that, what we mean is that a, a child who wants its parents' attention will badger them. And if they get the attention, they get a positive stroke and they a little endorphin rush and they feel good. If they get ignored, that's, you know, that, that's why you send people to solitary confinement or send them to Coventry. And then in order to break out of that, it's better to get a negative stroke, shouted out, beaten, whatever, than not have any attention. And so people, you see this in the workplace all the time, people playing the victim, people who don't get what they want. Entitlement is a big driver of victimhood. So you're looking very tight-lipped there. You look like you really want to say something. I, I really want to recommend a book on exactly that. Go ahead. It's called, I was just looking up, making sure I, I got the title absolutely right and the authors. It's called The Courage to be Disliked by, by Ichiro Kishimi. I, it's a Japanese fable, I think, that's been translated. And it's, it's actually written in script form. A young man talks to a philosopher about exactly these things. And that example is given in there, that one that you gave, that a child will misbehave to get attention because the child that is good will not get attention. It's quite jarring, this book now, The Courage to be Disliked, okay? Quite jarring, quite, you know, it's a bit out there. It's a bit controversial. I love it. So what I have said in my Facebook group is, you know, if you are, um, if you've seen me, if you've been a client, current client or an ex-client of mine, read this book. If you're in a really good place, read this book. If you are in a, a not so good place, do not read this book. Because it's talking exactly in the way that we're talking now, that you are comfortable where you are. You're not going to like that. 
It's about having courage to change, having courage to, yeah, be part of the community, be part of the uh, the tribe, to give back, to be selfless in a way that that will understand that that will give you something that will give you purpose in your life. That is the secret of life. Well, again, another fundamental human need is contribution. And another one is connection and love. And we t- the, the problem is with those seem to have been subverted or uh, subjugated in favor of more rational, utilitarian, practical, commercial qualities. But I've seen sales um, turn into essentially a, a factory uh, process and almost no one has relationships with their customers, which is why the, t- the, the churn rates are so terribly high. Turnover rates in sales are high. The number of people who are coming to me, because they're principled and they're being asked to do things they know aren't in their customer's best interest, but they're being asked to do it anyway. And they're feeling pressure from their bosses. They, you know, they want to keep their job. There's a lot of uncertainty around. Uh, they want to be top of the leaderboard. They've been there before and they kind of want it back but it's jarring with their value system. And so they can't perform. Mm. So I'm really curious what you would say to someone in that situation. Understanding how the brain works. I spend a lot of time people educating people how the brain works. Some of that is normal. It's your, your defense mechanism, your survival response. But once you see that, like, I can see what my, my brain's, my brain's like my minder. That's why it's called your mind. It's minding you. It's trying mm-hmm. to look after you. So it's doing that to say, well, oh God, we don't want to do that. What you need to understand is that this isn't life or death. It's just, you know, it's a scary situation. You know, I, I know, you know, you're going to ask me the question, what's my mistake in life? You know, what would I tell myself? And it's, a, it's about that. Mistakes happen, but you can learn from them. And you've got it's to take risk. Point. My best mistake, the one that at the time oh. it felt terrible, but now you look back, you think, wow, that was a blessing. Oh, God, so many. They're, they're probably little. I'm trying to think that, you know, what did I do wrong? I remember once we, we were looking at a house in an area and, well, you know, the mistake happened in that we lost that house and I fell apart. I really wanted that house and I totally fell apart. And now I look back and thinking that that wasn't supposed to happen for a reason. My life would have been on a completely different tra- trajectory right. if we had if we'd got that. And it was a big mistake to have it. You know, that's what I try to encourage the young people. I see that what you see as a mistake now, when when you're saying no to something, you're saying yes to something else. And it's just that you can't see that right now. And like a level English, when one door opens. And yes. Door yeah, yeah. Or closed. No, when, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, there will be another option, but you're so focused and got your blinkers on that that is what you want. You think that that's what's right for you. Well, this speaks to limiting beliefs. So let's talk about those because, uh, and we we need to wrap up because I've taken more time than uh, viewers and I should have. Let's talk about the power of limiting beliefs and uh, how to break them gently. You, I've been very lucky in the team I've had around me from young. So parents, you can do anything you want. You, you are going to, you might have to work twice as hard because you're a woman and you're brown, but you can have anything you want. So, you know, that's touching on our diversity conversation earlier, but that's been really good. Having people around you that will support you, having people that will say, if you make a mistake, I'm not going to judge you. If this goes wrong, I'm not going to judge you. 
we're going to try again if you want it. Or you might not want it. That's fine. If you make the mistake, it go, if you do it, it goes wrong. You know, you might not want it then. Give it a go. What have you got to lose? You know, so having that support. Yes, you know, but even practicalities as well. Financial support. I've been able to take risks because I've had financial support from elsewhere. You know, there's other ways to do it. The moral support is just, you know, so you've got to build your tribe around you. That's the way to do it. And your tribe, if it's not your family, so, you know, people's family dynamics are different. You can find them somewhere else. If it's not your work colleagues, you can still find, just because they're not there at the workplace, they'll be somewhere else. So it doesn't have to be absolutely everyone in your life is in your tribe. Because again, we, we need diverse opinions in our life. It makes us grow so much. But you need to have, what, two, three people that you can call on that will support you and you will know will have your back. They're your cheerleaders. And that's where I feel I've curated my life in such a way. And that takes time. Over years, I've curated my life in a way that I know that these are all good things in my life. People, things, whatever you want to call them. My environment is curated. That's really interesting. I would recommend a couple of books. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, The Happiness Hypothesis. Some really fascinating stuff in there uh, around how people can be happy and how important support is, your uh, support infrastructure. Having a, a flock to turn to when things aren't working quite the way you want it. And the other one I would look at is Susan Cain's Quiet. It talks about introversion, but there's some really, really interesting questions that it raises around how people recover and how they recharge and how they get their energy. Because I think a lot of people are introverts, but they're operating in a culture and an environment that relishes extroversion and values extroversion. And so that creates another amount of stress unnecessarily and this then speaks to the big question of what we need to do around creating more enlightened management so that they are able to handle a diverse group of people with diverse experiences, diverse backgrounds, diverse ages. And we, we you could have four, maybe even five generations working in a business today. And they all speak different languages. Yeah. So help us out of that one. Um why not? This is the world. I find that exciting when you say that. It's exciting for all these different languages, all these different cultures. We can learn from each other. The world's a smaller place because of technology. God, let's get in there and mix it up. You know, let's do that. I was having a, a conversation with a friend recently who was talking about, um, well, you know, so um, I know people who now are coming up, young people, young white males, they're now, you know, the, you know, they're seen as sort of the lowest in the food chain now because people are ticking boxes for diversity. And I went, oh, I hope not. You know, we're not ticking boxes here. I hope that someone would employ me on my abilities, not. But on the other hand, I will say, well, you know, you can tell them what we were told when we were seven, eight years old, you are going to have to work twice as hard. That's it. It's an unfair world out there but at seven eight years old to be told that you know and that so that's the way I do things the way that I do now the way that I'm doing things now because I know but to me it's not hard work now it's just that's the way I do things I've almost been conditioned and it might be you know people might listen to this and think oh well that's quite sad but I don't see it as that I'm, I'm prepared to work I'm, I'm curious about the um 
paradox because that must be creating quite a lot of stress in a seven-year-old. But the outcome is good, certainly in terms of where you seem to feel very happy and grounded where you are. So it's interesting how much stress is good stress. I was speaking to a coach last week, and he was saying that around 7% more than you think you're capable of doing tends to push people into flow. And Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's uh, work on that suggests that as well. Uh, goals should be around maybe 4 to 7% further than you think you can stretch to. Uh, just so it's an incremental additional reach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to go that technical with percentages, but there's two types of stress. There's challenge stress. Our stress bucket can take that. That's when we're challenged, when we're pushed to do things. If we tip over into threat stress, stress type number two, we feel threatened and we're going to go into fight or flight mode. Now, there's a real sweet spot at that borderline between challenge stress and threat stress known as the stretch zone. You, you used that word a moment ago, Marcus, stretch, when you feel stretched and we're all different. So just yet pushing yourself. So you're feeling challenged. You're in a nice comfort zone. You know, so a little bit of challenge is a, a comfort zone. But then what people mistake is that if they go over that, they're going to start panicking. They're going to go into panic zone. They're going to go into threat. But there is a sweet spot called the stretch zone, which your intelligent part of your brain loves. It likes challenge. It likes risk. It's where we learn. It's where we really develop ourselves. Oh, the, the intelligent part of our brain loves it. But people assume that they'll, they'll panic too quickly and they'll go over into the panic zone. That, that's red, red alert. This is really interesting. One of my partners, Daryl Stickle, has developed a formula. He basically did his PhD in how to develop stress in high conflict environments. And it's really fascinating. But what he says is that uncertainty times vulnerability equals perceived risk. And I'm really curious if there's a way uh, to become... Uh, more precise in terms of being able to recognize the science so we can take advantage of it instead of missing it. Because I don't think you can necessarily quantify what percentage, but if you can see the triggers and you can be prepared for it, you rehearse for it, you practice for it. A lot of my training is about putting people into a context where they're facing the same problem that they faced last week and the week before and the week before, but the context is different. Um, because then you really understand the problem. And I'd love to see, if, is there a way that we can pick up on these cues so that we can start to train ourselves, prepare ourselves for it so we're inoculated? It's being solution focused about it. What is it that you want? Do, do you want success in this job? Do you want to be this kind of person who has got that kind of resilience and knows how to take challenge stress? So I've spoken to people and they've said, oh, God, it's a really high pressure environment. I'm not really liking this job. And I thought, you know, uh, this is uh, like uh, doctors, for example. So speak to doctors, that's how it's really high pressure. And like, yeah, I really can't do it. And I'm really stressed out. I said, well, it's, it's your choice. You can either, you can, this is the environment that you're in. If you're working, for example, they want to be an A&E doctor, but they don't want the stress. I'm like, mm, those two things go together. How, how are you going to manage that? So yeah. what your, your options are is not be a doctor anymore. Oh no, but I still want to be a doctor. Okay. You have to take this as part of it. You have to be realistic now, but you can start building up confidence, resilience, these, you're not born with them. You cultivate them. Your brain is like a muscle, like any other muscle in your body. Stretch it, exercise it. 
understand if you're going to go into panic and overdo it, pull back again and get into your comfort zone. But you can do it. If your big vision is to be a doctor in A and E, you can do this. This speaks almost exactly in parallel with a model of leadership because moving people from where they are to where they need to be means you have to go over this sort of chasm of chaos and uncertainty. And the moving parts within that chaos aren't clear and you don't understand the connections, but it's the relationships that really matter. It's understanding how they're interconnected, what the syntax is, uh, what the signs are, what the triggers are. So if I see this and this, then that's likely to happen. The constant, you know, understanding the downstream consequences. And I would say that reflection is, again, very simple. Keep a journal, but the simplest version is you, a pen, a pad, and a question, and no answers and a set time. So no interruptions, no video, no email, no phone, no nothing. Lock yourself away uh, and then a pad and one big, nasty, difficult, perennial question you cannot solve. And and keep working at it. And you just have more questions. And the more questions you have, the deeper you'll understand the problem. And for those of you who have not yet done so, I cannot recommend highly enough this exercise on a tool like ChatGPT. The potential to speed think through uh, problems is magnificent. I've been able to accomplish stuff in three days that I haven't been able to accomplish in the last eight months because I couldn't formulate my thoughts quickly enough and I had to go and speak to other people. This way, I've got at least a framework. So when I do go and speak to those people, I've got something to work with. My thoughts have been clarified. I'd like to add there, Marcus, it's not just sitting and working on it. The subconscious works here. Step away from it and go for a walk. Stop thinking about it sometimes as well. Some are overthinking it and sitting with it too much. It becomes overwhelming. Step away from it. How many times have you been doing something at your desk? You're working on it, working on it. You walk away, go for a cup of tea, come back, and all of a sudden the answer hits you in the face. That's because what's going on at the back of your brain, something in that subconscious area, something called the default mode network. When your brain shifts into default mode, it actually works on problems. You've got to actually sit back and let that happen. You can't just keep keep analyzing it. Sorry, Marcus. No, no you, you've just got me very, very excited. How do I get that working full time in the background? Uh, what, what do I have to do to program that so I can take the greatest advantage of its effectiveness to do all the heavy lifting for me and stop me from letting my ego get in the way? This is what you do. It's the solution focused formula, I call it. Okay. First of all, you start off step one, what has been good about your week? Tell me good things that have happened. I know you've had stress and strain. Tell me good things that have happened. We understand the brain works. That We're in the positive part of the brain now. We're trying to calm down the negative part of the brain. So in sessions, I will push people. What else has been good? What else has been good? What else has been good? Tell me all the good things that have happened in your week, all the positives. Right now, that's the warm up for the positive part of the brain. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, so how you're feeling today? Often I'll use something called a happiness scale. And I'll say, what number are you on that scale right now? And you might say, oh, I'm three. So zero to 10. 10's the goal you want to reach. Zero is the other end of that. Complete disaster. What number are you? Even if you're a number three, fine. I'll say, great, number three. I want you to think if you woke up tomorrow 
and you were magically one step up on that scale. Now, I'm not asking you, what would you do to get one step up on that scale? I'm saying, basically, I've got a magic wand. I'm going to make you one step up on that scale. If you woke up tomorrow morning and you were a four, what difference would that make to your day? How would you know you're a four instead of a three? Not what would you do to become a four? You are a four. We've skipped that step because that's where the voice of doubt comes in. Oh dear, I'm going to be a four. I'm like, no, I'm going to skip that, skip that doubt. You are a four. What are you going to do? What difference would that make today? Now, often people will say, oh, I'll, I'll wake up with a bit more energy. Now we need to give the subconscious a lot more detail. So if you had more energy, give me a small thing that you might do that shows you you've got more energy. And people will say, well, you know, I'll go out for a walk first thing in the morning. More detail, please. The subconscious loves detail. So more detail about that walk. What time are you going to go for a walk? Where are you going to go for a walk? How are you going to go for a walk? Build that picture. Build that picture for me. This, this is What you're doing here is you're sending a message to your subconscious to start working on in the default mode network, which it will in a moment. Uh, you're sending it a positive message. And the last question I ask is, I'll summarize that. So Marcus, if you, if you woke up tomorrow morning and you were a four, and you knew you were a four because you've got loads of energy. Um, you know you've got energy because you went for a walk at six o'clock in the morning on your favorite walk through those woods that you really enjoy and you're looking at nature around you. Would you be pleased about that? And hopefully you would say, oh, yeah, that'd be lovely, Jen, if that happened. Now, your mind doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. You know this. So your mind thinks it already has happened. You've gone for a walk at six o'clock in the morning in the lovely woods. Does that mean I don't have to go for the walk? No, no, you don't. Your brain, you've already created a neural pathway. You don't have to. I will never ask you if you've done that walk. If you've imagined that, what you're going to do now is now you're going to go into the default mode network. You know what that is? Relaxation. And by relaxation, what I mean is I want you to do nothing. I want you to sit there and daydream. It is good to get bored. We don't do it enough, Marcus. We want you to relax. So what I will say to people is, you know, if you need to do something, go for a walk without your phone. No headphones, no phone. I want you to walk around the block. You know what? If you did that for 10 minutes, if you set yourself up with that positive image, walked around the block for 10 minutes and just daydreamed, I'm not asking you to think about something. I'm not asking you to meditate on anything. I want you to daydream. Look at the sky, look at people watch, walk around the block. You might start thinking, oh, what am I having for dinner tonight? That's absolutely fine. And then you're going to come back in. I will guarantee that is the default mode network, which what we believe your mind is going into is something called the inner rehearsal mode. And so what it's been working on, your subconscious has been working on not necessarily the image of going for a walk at six o'clock in the morning in the woods. It's working on the feeling it gave you. Oh, I'd be pleased and that'd give me more energy and I'd feel really positive about my day. And now this is your vision of your future. I'm going to be really cheeky. Would you come back and do another episode, but take me through the process so people can actually experience what it's like. And Would you be my guinea pig then? Yeah, I'd be your guinea pig. I've, I've, I've done that for psychometrics. I've done it for yeah. people. Think. Everyone knows how screwed up I am. I just think it's really valuable to see this in action. So, yeah, I'd be very happy. To yeah, what, what I do in, in the relaxation part is that I would ask you to sit back, close your eyes, and I'll take you through a guided visualization, which I will say to you, 
you don't have to listen to a word I'm saying. Uh-huh. It's not it's not meditation. It's not mindfulness. I want you to just relax for 10, 15 minutes. And I guarantee you'll notice a difference in the end. That is the solution-focused formula. I would love to do that for you if you'd be up for it. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, no, I, I'm up a little for it. little mini session then, a mini yeah, session yeah. in action. And that's something, you know, I, I, I want to do. This is how, that's exactly how a session works. This is really, I've got another idea, but we'll talk about it afterwards. Jill, you've been a fabulous guest. This has been Thank one you so great. much for having me. I've enjoyed it. We could talk it's for been, hours. Yeah, I, I, I haven't even start, got started yet. <laughs> Eloise, geez, we won't thank her for uh, introducing us. Tell me this, how can people get hold of you? So you can search, search for Stress Bucket Edinburgh and you'll probably find me. <laughs> <laughs> that but sounds like your three uh, what's it just three words just three that's my just three words yes my just three words are stress bucket edinburgh yeah. um but otherwise it's ginlally.com g-i-n-l-a-l-l-i.com everything's on there i'm on twitter i'm on linkedin i love linkedin probably most of all and a little bit on facebook but yeah ginlally.com i think that's probably if i give you that that's the easiest Easiest way. It's got all my details on there. Excellent. Jin Lally, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, go back, listen to it again and again and again, and take lots of notes because Jin's given you at least 70 questions that I've taken a note of. So make sure you go back. If you fancy, go back and give us a bit of a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to. If you are somebody who is a principled seller and you're walking a tightrope between doing what's right, keeping your job and keeping your bosses happy, hitting the top of the leaderboard and succeeding financially, but you're finding that your values are being jarred, get in touch with Jin, get in touch with me. Either one of us can help. I'm sure she's much nicer than I am. Just have a blast. Happy selling. Bye-bye.